the book of James. This is one of the earliest New Testament books written. It was written anywhere between 41 and 50 A.D. So shortly after Jesus dies, resurrects, is on earth for 40 days, and then ascends into heaven, few years afterwards, now we get this book of James. Uh, one author, he said that James is the epistle of applied Christianity. The epistle of applied Christianity. That's a great question for us. Is your Christianity real? Do you apply it? Is it in your life? Is it living? Is it breathing? Can people see each and every day by the decisions that you make, by the things you accept, by the things that you decline, can people see that you're living out your Christian faith? Because real faith produces works. A true faith in Jesus Christ will produce works within our lives. Works do not save us. Real faith saves us. Real faith in Jesus Christ. But real faith will produce works. More about the author. James, this James, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Why was he the half-brother of Jesus Christ? Because who's Jesus' father? God, right? And now James's father is Joseph. So... Jesus' brothers, again, it's amazing. He calls us his brothers and his sisters. But James, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And again, it's incredible because while Jesus is about his ministry for three years, his own brothers, his own family, they don't believe him. In John chapter 7, verse 5, you can write it down. It says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So again, imagine growing up with Jesus being your big brother, right? It sounds kind of bittersweet, right? Sounds amazing having a big brother that's perfect, that looks after you, wants to share with you all the time, always lets you have first pick of cake and first pick of the video games and dinner. But again, parents, we know we're not perfect, right? Can you imagine the amount of times, why can't you be like your big brother, right? <laughs> Jesus shares, why can't you share, right? Jesus, well, come on, James, come on, you got to be like your big brother. Again, imagine the shoes or the sandals that he would have to fill. I like how Joe Foe said it, right? Jesus, he's the one on the top bunk, and James, throughout their life, he's the one on the bottom bunk. Growing up with Jesus, right, what that must have been like. Jesus would later on appear specifically to James after his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 that's where we see that. It tells us that there. And after the Lord does such a work in James, and again, this should be an encouragement to us. Afterwards, James, he begins to seek the Lord with all of his heart. He begins to seek Jesus, right? His big brother with all of his heart. Again, imagine, Joe Foley, you mentioned it, but imagine the person you care about the most that has passed away. And now imagine... A few days after they pass away, they appear to you, right? The joy, the questions, the emotions that must be going on inside of you saying, what in the world is happening? And now they leave after 40 days. But what you begin to realize is that this amazing family member has left a way of communication with them. And the crazy thing about James is his nickname was Old Camel Knees. 
It's a pretty weird nickname, right? But that's his nickname, Old Camel Knees. You see, James would enter into prayer so often that he had calluses on his knees. So again, his big brother, he leaves. He finally sees him as the Messiah. But what he realizes is that he can speak with his big brother as much as he wants. As much as he's willing to enter into that time of prayer, he is able to have that fellowship and that communication with his big brother. So again, scholars say that when James passed away, they had problems straightening his knees to put him in the coffin. The amount that he would pray, they were all scabbed up, all filled with calluses. They say he would go to the temple and he would pray for hours a day. And that's convicting, right? It's convicting. I got no calluses on my knees, right? Lord, give me time. Lord, give me the discipline to spend more time in prayer with you. James would grow so much with his relationship with Jesus and with the Lord. Again, it's weird. After he passes away that he's there in the upper room when the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 1 Verse 13 and 14, you see him mentioned there with the other disciples. Finally, again, James, he grows so much in his walk and relationship with the Lord that James was in charge over the first church council in Jerusalem. He was the CEO, in a sense, right, of the church in Jerusalem. You find him there in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. And again, just an amazing author and It's incredible because he gives us just commands, right? Paul, he gives us a lot of theology, a lot of reasoning. But now here, James, he just tells you commands. You're a believer. This is the way you should be living. You're a believer. You shouldn't be a hypocrite. You're a believer. This is what real religion looks like. You're a believer. You say you have faith. Let me see that faith through your works. James, he's just hitting people just Head on, just straight, black and white. And for us to be willing to accept that. James, throughout these five chapters, he gives us over 50 commands. No nonsense. You're a believer, you should do this. He gives us no nonsense. Who is this book written to? It's written to Jewish believers, you can think of Hebrews, who were scattered all around. First and foremost, scattered around because of true persecution. They would leave Jerusalem, they would leave Israel, and other believers who were scattered because of the day of Pentecost and how they were spread out to share the gospel all over the world. He speaks directly against hypocrisy, he speaks directly against religiosity, and he speaks directly against the evil speech that we can have as believers. It's amazing because throughout church history there are many who don't like the book of James. They don't like it because Paul, he emphasizes faith throughout his epistles. But James, he emphasizes works. And now these two things, they are not going against each other, but they work complementing one another. Again, faith is what saves us, but now works should be coming through that. Faith that saves is a faith that works. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It produces works. Again, family, if someone says that they are a Christian, but there are no works to back it up, they're living in a question mark, right? We went over that through the book of Hebrews. They are living in a question mark. If they say that they're a Christian, but there's no works behind it, they're living in a question mark. 
And now our role is to speak the truth and love to them. And ultimately, the Lord is the only one with the real eyes or the real thermometer, the real dipstick as we learned, right? To see are they really saved or not. I don't know how many here, you thought you were saved and then you actually got saved, right? I don't know if I'm the only one. That was me. I thought I was saved and then I actually got saved. And I said, woof, wow, Lord. So this is what it means to be a believer, right? It's in the Lord's hands. Again, remember, be gracious. Everyone grows at a different pace. We know from the parable of the sower that the seed, it does grow, but then it gets choked out or the roots dry up. Or different things happen. So we don't know everyone. We don't know if right now they're going through the weeds. We don't know if right now they're growing on stony ground. We don't know if the birds are circling them. We don't know. All we should be doing is praying and speaking the truth and love. Encouraging them. Being hospitable to them. Praying for them. That's how we should be acting as believers. For those of you who like outlines, a quick five chapter, five point outline. Chapter 1, and all of this, it says mature Christian. A mature Christian should be this, a mature Christian should be that. But let's be honest, we should all be mature Christians, right? No one here should be saying, no, I'm signing up for being a mediocre Christian, right? I want to be an okay Christian. I want to be a remedial Christian, right? That should be none of us here. So I'm going to take out the mature Christian and just say, a Christian should be, and that will be our outline. So a Christian should be patient in trials a christian should be patient in trials that's what we get from chapter one chapter two a christian should be practicing or living out the word a christian should be practicing or living out the word of god chapter three a christian should control their tongue a christian should control their tongue Chapter 4, a Christian should make peace and not trouble. A Christian should be making peace and not trouble. And finally, chapter 5, a Christian should pray. A Christian should pray. So a Christian should be patient in trials. A Christian should be practicing or living out the word. A Christian should control their tongue. A Christian should be making peace and not trouble. And a Christian should be in prayer. And again, as we look at the reality that we should be patient in trials, again, it is a mature believer. If you're here and you've recently gotten saved, again, maybe we all grow in different ways, right? Different times. You look at LHM, you got all ages, all shapes, all sizes. There are some kids in sixth grade that are as tall as seniors, and you got some seniors that got to pray for them, right? This, that's just the way of life. That's just the way it goes. But as we're maturing, you should be patient in trials, right? Do kids have a lot of patience? Even in something good, right? You're going on a trip to Disney World, and what is the question for the next three, four hours, right? Are we there yet? It's something good. You're trying to bless them, but there is zero patience, you're at the restaurant, you're waiting for the food, you order them whatever they want. What's the question? What's the chaos until the food gets there? Where's the food? Why do we have to sit down? Why can't I run around the restaurant? Why can't I go poke that stranger over there, right? <laughs> that is, again, someone who is immature. But now if you have a 12-year-old still doing that, 
You have a 22-year-old still doing that. If you husbands, that's how you're treating your wife when you're at the restaurant, right? Something's off. Something's wrong. So we as believers, one of the marks of a mature believer is that they are patient in trials. And again, for some of us, it's easy to be patient when things are good, right? Maybe you're into massages or you ladies are into mani-pedis. It's easy to be patient during the massage, right? Your favorite movie, your favorite right NFL starting tomorrow, you can be patient in overtime. But now when there's a trial, when there's a situation that you don't like, are you patient? Are you calm? Are you cool? Are you collected? Are you freaking out, screaming, right? Your wife wakes you up in the middle of the night, honey, I heard a, oh, I heard a sound. Do you begin to scream and hide in the closet and call 911? Or are you calm, assuring her, bringing peace in the home and going and checking out what's the threat that's happening within the home. But let's read James chapter 1. And we'll read verse 1 through 11. It tells us, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven. And tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen... With a burning heat, then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Again, there's a couple things right off the bat that if we're honest, we don't like, right? There are a couple things that pop off the page that we're hoping the Hebrew, the Greek, somehow give us a different explanation to what James is saying here. But the first thing, verse 1, we begin digging in. James, look at what he identifies himself as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus is kind of an important person in our, right, our religion, if you would, our walk with the Lord, our relationship with Jesus. And yet he doesn't cling to that. That's not his... His name of fame, he doesn't cling to that. He doesn't cling to that. What he clings to, what he describes himself as, is a bondservant. Hopefully you know that word. That's that word doulos in the Greek. A doulos is one who gives himself to the will of another. One who gives himself to the will of another. Again, Jesus tells us, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross daily. Right? 
crucify yourself and follow me. If you're here, you're a Christian, hey, we are all bond servants. We are all douloses of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he didn't say, hey, I'm James, the brother of the Son of God, right? That's not where he goes. James, the brother of the perfect one. James, the brother of the one who calmed the winds and the sea. James, the brother of the one who defeated sin and death. No, I am James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, family, may we take on that humility. Sometimes that's lacking within Christian circles. Sometimes that's lacking, sadly, even in some pastor's conferences. I love one of my brothers. At a pastor's conferences, you always get these weird questions, right? People ask, hey, how big is your church? And you never know how to answer, right? Do you want square footage? Do you want the building square footage? Do you want the amount of people? Do you want how many toilets we have? Right? What is, what is the question? What's the question that you want, right? One of my brothers, he says, I ask him, what's the number you want that will impress you? And then I'll give that to you, right? But James, he says, hey, I'm a bondservant. I am giving myself to the will of another. And within our Christianity, it's easy for us to say this, right? It's easy for us to have a, a t-shirt that says servant or doulos. It's easy for us to get a tattoo that says doulos. We think it's real cool. But once someone starts actually treating you like a doulos, that's where you begin to see in your heart if you're really a servant or not. When someone begins to treat you like a servant... Then you begin to see, Lord, am I truly a servant that my will bows down to your will, O Lord? And now who is he writing to? The 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Again, the people of Israel, these new believers, after leaving Judaism, again, you can remember Hebrews leaving Judaism and oppressing into Jesus Christ, they've been scattered all abroad. Whether it's because of Pentecost or whether it's because of the friction and heat of being a Christian in a country, in a city that is fueled by Judaism. Now in verse 2, right? It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. My brethren, count it all joy. There's sort of a play on words here. He's not telling us to count it all joy. He's not telling us, I'll mention it again later, he's not telling us to be some type of weirdo that we're saying, yes, bring on more pain, right? I love this trial. Lord, give me more trials. That is not what James is asking us to do. In the same way that he greeted the church, he greeted these 12 tribes, he's saying, my brethren, greet these trials with joy. Greet trials with pure joy. When you find yourself surrounded with a trial, it's not that all of a sudden you become this weird psycho with a smile on your face. It's that you say, okay, Lord, here we go. What are you going to do? And we'll look at the reasoning why we should look at it with joy, right? Why we should count it without joy. Second part for us to focus here is that it's not if you fall into various trials, but what does he tell us here? When you fall into various trials. Family, trials and testings are inevitable. You will, Christian or not Christian, spirit-filled believer, carnal believer, you will go through trials and testings. They're a part of life and they will come to you in unexpected and different ways. 
And again, the Lord, he's the best professor ever, right? Some things that may be a trial for me might not be a trial for you. And some things that are a trial for you might not be a trial for me. Each of us, we go through different things, right? Some of us on Thanksgiving, we get invited to every single household we could ever think of. And there's some of you that would love it and enjoy it. And there's other of you that are built differently, right? And now you're freaking out. What are we going to do? How are we going to do this? Right? There's some of you, you got invited nowhere for Thanksgiving. And it was the best Thanksgiving ever, right? And there's the same people. You get, uh, there's different people. There's Thanksgiving. You get invited nowhere. And now your world is destroyed, right? What's the point of living without the turkey and the family and the fellowship, right? Each of us, we get faced with different trials and different tests. Many times they're physical. Other times it can be emotional. Things pop up and now our emotions, they just rush in and now we're being tested. How will we go through this trial? Many times it's a financial crisis, right? Something happens, you lose your job. Something happens with a check. Someone steals from you, and now you're being tested with your faith. Other times it could be relationships. Someone you thought loved you, and then somehow it got lost in translation, right? It's somewhere in China, not here at home where you thought. And that can affect you. The last one I wrote down here is sometimes our identities. Something that we think identifies us. And now that can be shaken, and now we begin to freak out. And now it's a trial. It's a testing. Hey, Zach, where is your true identity in? Is it in that you're married? Is it in your kids? Is it in your job? Is it in your church? Or, Zach, is your identity in Jesus Christ and him crucified? But again, when we're faced with these different trials, we should greet it. We should say hi to it with pure joy. And these trials, again, depending on which Bible version you have, I believe King James Version says it's a temptation, but the better translation is a trial or a test. Because just because you're faced with a trial or a test does not mean that it automatically is something sinful. Later on in verse 12 through 13, right, that gives us a difference with temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Temptation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. There's a difference here. And when we come to a trial, you don't like slowly step into a trial like the shallow end of a pool. Many times you just all of a sudden find yourself inside of a trial. The car just, engine blew up and you're just there in the car and now you have to decide what's going to go on, right? For some of you new parents, you're ready, you're already set to go to church and your baby's diaper explodes on the way to church, right? And now you're faced with a trial. How are you going to endure? How is your patience? We should greet it with joy. Psalm 116 verse 3, you can write it down. It tells us, The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. But then in verse 4, David, he gives us an idea of how to handle it. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. So the question, at least I ask, why in the world should I greet it with pure joy? And verse 3 gives us the answer. We are to greet it with pure joy because we should know that the testing of our faith produces patience. Family, we need to know the next time we're faced with a trial that, hey, this trial, this testing of my faith will produce patience. 
patience. And now the patience here, it's not the type of patience. Last week I went to the DMV and I got my new license. My old picture from when I was 18. The story, the conversation piece, the little Jufro I had is all gone of my uh, license 20 years ago. But now the patience is not waiting in the DMV. It's not waiting at the doctor's office with some weird telenovela and some magazine. I mean, well, we don't do these things anymore, right? We phone in and we get appointments. But that type of patience, the waiting for your wife to get ready or your kids to get ready, that's not the patience it's talking about. It's an endurance. It's an active endurance. Instead of a patience, right? Sometimes you're bored, you're waiting in the airport, you're laying on the floor, you're falling asleep. You're hanging out, you got your AirPods in, and you're just waiting. You go to your favorite food and your favorite airport. No, that's not that type of patience. It produces endurance. And this is the type of endurance that helps you finish a five-round fight. This is the type of endurance that helps you finish a marathon. This is the type of endurance that helps you finishing a 48-hour work shift. This is the type of endurance that is produced when our faith is tested. And we endure it. We stay under it. We need these tests, family. We may not like them, but we need them. First and foremost, if we stay in them, it will produce this active endurance. Another word here, it tells us in the Greek, it's to stay, to abide To remain underneath something. To stay, abide, remain underneath something that's having a heavy load. It's choosing to stay under it instead of running away from it or throwing it away. How are you doing with your trials? Are you just running away from them? Are you just jumping into sin? Are you allowing the trial and now the temptation comes and you just jump onto the temptation and say, get me out of here? Or are you under the weight and you're saying, okay, Lord, I'm greeting this with joy. Let's go. Help me, Lord. Strengthen me. Sometimes you see someone, they're under a weight. They're in the squat rack. They have a bunch of weight on their back. And instead of just dumping it off, they hold on to it and they slowly eke it out. And what happens is that there's an endurance that's growing there. Greek A Greek commentator, he says, it's patience that's the frame of mind which endures. The frame of mind which endures. Today in America, I think we'd call it the mind of a champion, right? Having that mind of a champion that you're not just good in the first inning or the first quarter, but the last two minutes of the game, that's when things sort of clear up and you're ready for it. That's the endurance that is produced During these tests of faith, when we lock in and we stay with the Lord. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It tells us, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
who was given to us. Again, family, this produces patience. It produces endurance. It produces the perseverance that the next time we're faced with a trial, we can say, you know what? Hey, I was able to do that last time. So I'm going to be able to get through this, through the power of the Lord, through relying on the Lord, through asking the Lord for wisdom and strength. I'm going to be able to get through it. Now, the testing of our faith, these tests, they do not produce faith, but these tests, first and foremost, they will produce endurance. But secondly, and hand in hand, so important, they reveal to us really where we are at with the Lord. These tests, these trials, they show you in the mirror who you really are with the Lord. I don't know if you've ever been there. Sometimes it happens at men's conferences, but you see someone doing something and you say, ah, that's easy, I could do that, right? Oh, those guys, they're just rolling on on the floor, wrestling each other. Ah, I could do that, I still got it in me, right? Then you go 30 seconds and then your mind is saying, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, right? And then the next couple of days, you got to ask the other brothers to, right, lay hands on you with Bengay, right, and different things like that. And what the test has revealed is you were not where you thought you were, right? You go with a friend to the gym, and yeah, I work out on and off, and he, hey, this is a starting weight, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a starting weight, right? And you go through the workout, and now the next two days, you're just, right, just walking around. And what that test revealed is that you were not where you thought you were. Again, family, where are you with the Lord when a small test, we mentioned it back in February, back in March, back in April. This is a difficult season. There are people passing away. It's affecting families. But in the grand scheme of things, this is but a small test. How are you hanging? Did you have the peace of God ruling and reigning in your heart? Was the peace of God pouring out of your life into the people around you? Or... Or you soar the next couple days, realizing, hey, Father, maybe I'm not where I thought I was with you. But now a great question, hopefully you're asking is, so where can I get more faith, right? I do want more faith. Hopefully you're still there in Romans. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It's so important for us because we need both of these things. We need faith and we need endurance. We need both of these things. You can think of faith as the muscle, right? We know Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith, it's super important. But we also need the endurance to stay in that state that we have faith in God, in who he is, and what God's word says that he is. But in Romans chapter 10, so important for us, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Again, family, it's so important for us to be spending time in God's word, spending time listening to good Bible studies, listening to sound doctrine, listening to God's Way Radio or your favorite pastor's teachings. It's important to listen to God's Word because that's where our faith grows. And then when the next trial comes, you get to see, wow, my faith has grown a little bit more. I trusted in the Lord. I was able to persevere through the trial. Charles Spurgeon, he says, we notice that it is faith that is tested. And it shows that faith is important and it's precious. Because only precious things are tested so thoroughly. Again, family, it's important. We need to have faith and trust in the Lord. We need to trust him and his word. Okay, Lord, 
My kids are acting crazy, but this is what your word says. Okay, Lord, this is what my boss is asking me to do, but Lord, this is what your word says. So my faith is in what God's word has to say more than my faith or my fear is in the consequences of following my boss or my family or what the world is telling us to do. Again, it's important. God does not allow these trials to destroy our faith. He's not allowing these trials so that now we begin to love pain and we love trials. No, he's allowing this to reveal who we really are. He's allowing us to see who we really are in the Lord. Verse 4, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, that word patience is that word endurance once again. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. John Trapp, he says, patience must not be an inch shorter than the affliction. If the bridge reached but halfway over the river, we shall have an ill-favored passage. It is the devil's desire to set us on in a hurry. Again, we need to endure. We need to stay under it. None of us would drive through a bridge. Oh, it's only 75% over the water, right? You just got to floor it at the end and you'll make it over. No, we need to have that endurance through the whole trial. Through the whole trial. Again, how much do you need to lift if you're lifting 250 pounds? Is it okay if you can just get by with 245? No. You're going to buckle. You're going to fall apart. We need to have that endurance right till the end until the trial is, in a sense, complete. There's a saying when it comes to cooking. If you're looking, you ain't cooking, right? We need to endure the trial. You got to leave the oven closed. You got to leave the smoker closed and let that piece of brisket come to temperature. Because if you keep checking on it, you're wasting time. You keep checking on it and the oven's going to need to get back up to temperature. So again, family, I encourage you, if you're in the trial right now, don't just be looking to jump out. Don't just be looking out to grab onto a temptation and think it's going to rid you of the trial. Endure. Stay patient under the weight and ask the Lord for wisdom and discernment. Allow it to have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The wording here, it's speaking of someone who's running a race, right? Or competing in an Olympic game. Is it okay if they have enough endurance for 98% of the race? No. Those are the people on not top 10 on SportsCenter, right? They made it right to the end and they threw their hands up and they lost balance and they ate it on the bike. They couldn't make it. They were right at the finish line and then they cramped up and then they fell. They didn't make it. You got to have endurance for the whole trial. You got to wait under it. We must endure the trial. Another thing to note, our flesh hates the trial. Naturally, you're not going to be under the trial and greet it with joy. That's why James tells us, hey, when you're in a trial, greet it with joy. Charles Spurgeon, he says, the natural tendency of trouble is not to sanctify, but it's to induce sin. A man is very apt to become unbelieving under affliction, and that is a sin. He is apt to murmur and complain against God, and that is a sin. He's apt to put forth his hand into some way of escaping from this difficulty, and that would be sin. 
Hence, we're taught to pray, lead us not into temptation. Because trial has in itself a measure of temptation. And if it were not neutralized by abundant grace, it would bear us towards sin. Again, once we're faced with trials, our first instinct is to sin. You hit your toe on the corner of the bed, I'm sorry, your first instinct isn't, oh, let me greet you with joy, right? Oh, thanks, Beth, thanks, all right, now I know that toe is still there. No, it's certain words come out that you forgot that were still registered in the file, right? Someone cuts you off, your car is overheating, you lose your job, it's not joy right away. Hey, hey, boss or ex-boss, did I ever invite you to church? You want to come to church with me, right? That's not the first instinct. Our first instinct in trials is to hate it because our flesh is so selfish. Our flesh thinks we deserve a perfect life, right? When things don't go our way, we begin to have more conversations with God than usual, right? Lord, why is this happening? Lord, why would you allow this? Lord, don't, Lord, I put in this work. Lord, I've been living pure. Lord, I've been going to church this long. Lord, I read my Bible this morning. And we can begin to have conversations with the Lord and it can enter into a realm where now we're questioning God. And now our faith isn't in God and his character. Our faith is in ourselves that, Lord, I know better than you. Lord, can't you allow me to be the professor administering these tests and these trials? We need to have that faith to continue to believe and have faith. Lord, you are who you say you are. Your word is true. To have faith to not murmur and complain against God. To have faith to not put our hand into some trickery right some sinful way to get out of the difficulty the last thing here on trials and temptations and this may sound crazy but our spirit can miss seasons of trials our spirit can miss seasons of trials Charles Spurgeon he says yet trials can provide a wonderful work of God in us I have looked back at times of trial with a kind longing Not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I felt it then. To feel the power of faith as I have felt it then. To hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then. And to see God work as I saw him then. I don't know if your maturity with the Lord is there that you miss those seasons of trials. Been through a couple little things. One of the things that pops into mind, we went on this crazy hike my senior year of camp, there's some guys, they say they, they would do it all over again. I would not do it all over again. But hey, I remember it. I remember going through it. I remember saying, where, are, where did everybody go, right? It's raining. It's dark. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're weary. And just trusting in the Lord and getting through it. And then my endurance grew a little bit. Seasons in life where things don't go right and now you're crying out to the Lord, Lord, I want to hold on to you, Lord. I want to be close to you, Lord. I'm reading my Bible more. I'm at church all the time. I'm serving all the time and I'm seeing God work through my life, in me and through me. Sometimes I miss those seasons. I don't miss the trials per se, but I miss seeing the Lord do those works. On mission trips, right? You see the Lord do works in insane situations, in terrible situations. You see the Lord come through. Family, do you miss that sense of being so near to the Lord? Pray, seek him. Ask, say, Lord, how can I get back to that season with you? Verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God 
who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If we lack wisdom, in other words, the first thing we should do in a trial is seek the Lord for wisdom. We should be seeking the Lord for wisdom. The moment you're in a trial, the moment you're in a test, what am I prone to do, right? Google, Google Maps, right? The interwebs, Reddit, my family member, my friend that's an expert in these things. But the first thing we should do when we're faced with the trial is to take a step back and pray. Take a step back and pray and say, Lord, fill me with wisdom and discernment. Lord, show me, okay, Lord, this test, this trial, I greet it with joy because, Lord, I know if I endure it, I'm going to grow in endurance. Lord, I know that if I endure it, I'm going to show where my faith is at with you, where my relationship is with you. And now, Lord, I ask you for wisdom. We should be asking the Lord. And now look at God's, right, who he is, his character traits, the man he is, the God being he is, he who gives to all liberally and without reproach. If you ask the Lord for wisdom, he's not going to give you half the amount of wisdom you need. He's not going to give you a tenth of the wisdom that you need. He wants to give you abundantly, just like all over the gospel when it comes to a spiritual life, your emotional life, your purity. He wants to give it in an abundance, joy, hope, peace. He wants to give all of this to us in an abundance. And then it's without reproach. Again, even with family members, maybe the first time they want to give it to you liberally, right? They want to give you a bunch. Hey, ma'am, I am struggling with this. I can need some help. But after the next month comes and you ask for help on the same bill, and the next month comes and you ask for help on the same bill, they may have reproach now when you ask them. They may say, what did you do last time? What have you done during the season? But the Lord, he's willing to give it to us over and over and over again. Not money. Not wealth, not Lamborghinis and Bentleys. No, wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. It's been said, knowledge is knowing how to take something apart. Wisdom is knowing how to put something together. And there's many people that have knowledge, right? Your car breaks down, they tell you exactly why it broke down. But does that help you get back on the road? Does that help you get to where you need to go? Does that help get the car to the mechanic, get your family home, and have everything else happen? No. Just get you a little bit more annoyed at the person that keeps telling you why it happened, right? Wisdom is knowing how to put things together. Saying, okay, okay, let's think this through. Okay, this is the cheapest. Okay, this is the cheapest way. This is the wisest way. This is the safest way. Let's do X, Y, Z, and let's build this together. And that's what we need in the trials. And what the enemy seeks to do in the midst of a trial, it's to destroy, right? Our nation, in a sense, is in the midst of the trial. And what the enemy is looking to do is to destroy, to separate, to divide. What we should be doing as believers is seeking to unite people, not with sin, but with the gospel, with the power of Jesus Christ, with the love of Jesus Christ. That's what we should be seeking to do, to be seeking to have the wisdom, to have that peace, to have that patience, to have that love with all the people that we run into. And then at the end of verse 5, what does it tell us? And it will be given to him. Family, ask for wisdom. Ask for understanding. But again, we can only really ask, and we'll see later, if we're asking in faith. 
if we're asking that our full faith, our full assurance, our full belief is in who he is, who he says he is, and what God's word says, how we should be living our lives. That's the only way we're going to be given that wisdom of how to build something, of how to put it back together. If we're just in sin and in temptation and living a wasteful life, don't come to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, now how do I put this back together? The first thing God is going to tell you is, hey, you want to put this back together? Confess your sins and get right with me. And there's wisdom there. So maybe he does still answer you. He will still answer you. But again, family, may we endure the trial. May we not just say that we're a Christian. May we live it. May we apply it each and every day. And again, this shows that we're mature. We're in the midst of the trial. We're not looking to take off heads, right? We're not looking to fight. We're not looking to destroy. No, we're waiting. We're, there's a weight. There's a heavy weight. But we're waiting and we're enduring saying, okay, Lord, what would you have me to do?